Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of a book called Wild Game. My mother her lover, and me. It is the riveting new memoir by Adrian Brodeur. It is also the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is an exceptional family memoir. It's a mother-daughter story. In it, Brodeur introduces us to her mother Malabar, a charismatic narcissist who embroils her daughter in a romantic affair at a young age and essentially takes over her life and herself until... Just in the nick of time. I'm not going to spoil it. You should read the book. It's called Wild Game. It is outstanding. It is by Adrian Brodeur. Wild Game. Out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Okay? My mailman just told me that he doesn't deserve it. And we all just admit that we love to that. Personally, I'm proud to be a celebrant. I gotta tell you. Hello. Hey. Hey. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People program. I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Madeline Stevens is my guest today. Her debut novel is called Devotion. It is available now from Echo. It's called Devotion. The name of the book is Devotion. You know what I mean. I think that the foreign rights for this novel have sold in like six countries. Maybe more. It's one of the more auspicious debuts of 2019. So I'm glad to have met Madeline just as uh, things are taking off for her. That conversation is coming up. I do want to thank my Patreons. I should do this more often, but a special thanks to everybody who supports this show. As I often say, you know, everything's free. There's no paywall. Like all the episodes, all 600 and whatever episodes are available for free. And, uh, you know, it's listener supported and the people who have stepped up to support deserve my thanks. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. A listener named Jay writes, Hey Brad, I loved the recent episode with Zulema Renee Summerfield. I've been listening for about three years now. Like you, 
I'm a dad in the early stages of my 40s. I balance a day job while waking in the wee hours to get into my creative space to make what keeps me sane in this crazy-ass world. I just wanted to give you a shout-out to say, keep it up, man. If I ran into you at a party, I would definitely enjoy a deep-dive conversation. Peace. Jay. All right, so Jay, I was with you until the end of that letter when I started to imagine the two of us at a party, like we're meeting for the first time. Like, how quickly are you thinking we would go deep? That's what I was imagining. I was just imagining being like, hi, and then suddenly, you know, you're taking it up a notch. But at the same time, I have often bristled. I think I, even on this show, I've bristled at the notion of having to make small talk at parties. I think we all hate that, right? We all complain about that. And yet I do feel like if it's the first time you and I are meeting, we need to ease into things a little bit before we really, you know, get into it. I hope that's okay. A listener named Douglas from Boulder, Colorado writes, Hi, Brad. I'm one of those fairly new listeners. I love the podcast, but damn, the Elizabeth Cantwell interview. Did you even ask her about her work? Most of the interview was you talking. Admittedly, somewhere around the one-hour mark, I started fast-forwarding. I agree with an earlier letter writer from a previous episode who lamented the volume of interruptions during the Kimberly King Parsons interview. You obviously know what you're doing with other people, and I often dig it, but sometimes I find myself shouting, enough about you, what about her? Either way, thank you. The podcast rocks. Signed, Douglas. Douglas, I feel like you have mixed feelings about this show. I feel like you love slash hate it. I feel like maybe the show is your frenemy or something. I take the, uh, the critique, uh, that, you know, the interrupting thing. I take that to heart. I said that on the you know, previous episode, I'm not trying to interrupt anybody. I'll try to let the silences breathe a little bit more. I'm doing my best, but I, you know, I can always improve as a podcaster. As far as asking about, um, you know, the work, sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't on this show. I've been f pretty transparent from literally episode one about the format of this show. It is improvisational. It is primarily about the author as a person. And uh, it is improvisational. Did I say that already? So uh, I think there are many podcasts out there of a literary ilk where you can hear authors break down their work with somebody who's much better at leading that kind of conversation than I am. It's not the, it's not the show I want to do. It's not what I'm best suited to do. I think I said this, uh, I don't know when I said it, did I tweet it? I can't remember, but I think I asked myself, like, when's the last time you had a great conversation that you prepared for? As somebody who talks to people a lot in this mode, I, I think about this. Like I sort of have to prepare a little bit, right? Would seem to be part of the job, but it's weird to prepare to have a conversation with somebody. I also think about my love of uh, improvisational art. I think in particular, I like improvisational music, but I'm fascinated by improvisational art in general. And I think with improvisational art in general, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. I think that the same sort of uh, rule 
if that's what you want to call it, would apply to a more improvisational podcast or to conversation in general. I think there's the thrill of when it goes right. You know, it feels sort of elevated. And that spontaneous, there's nothing artificial about it. You don't know when it's happening spontaneously. But if I go into the conversation and my head is loaded full of facts, all these things I'm supposed to ask and things I'm supposed to know, I think it weighs me down. It takes some of the fun out of it for me. And I would imagine for most of the listeners, but, you know, to each their own. Some people like to uh, hear a more structured conversation. That's okay. So thanks to uh, uh, Douglas for writing to me and sharing your thoughts. I appreciate it. If you're out there and you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest again is uh, Madeline Stevens. Such a delight meeting her. Her debut novel, again, is called Devotion. It is out there now from Echo, and uh, it is excellent. So let's get to the conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Madeline Stevens, and her book, One More Time, is called Devotion. I'm originally from Boring, Oregon. That's the name of the town? That's the name of the town. Where, like, what, is this Eastern Oregon, Western Oregon? No, it's like um, just an hour southeast of Portland. Okay. So we went to Portland on weekends as teenagers, you know, hang out, hanging out. But And like what? Go to the, what do you do in Portland as a teenager? Um, go to punk shows. Oh, really? Yeah. You were a punk kid? You don't strike me as a punk person. Uh, well, I didn't strike anyone as a punk person then either, but <laughs> that's what we would do. Were you into it? Kinda. I had a, a high school boyfriend who had like a, a, you know, really high school punk band. And what was, um, it, what was it called? It was called Second Best. 
Okay. I think there's still a band. Wow. Um, can't say for sure because I don't really keep in touch with those people anymore. You're not still dating them? No. Okay. No. It no. ended. It ended. Like in high Amicably. school? Amicably. Amicably. Yeah. Shortly after high school. Got it. But So he was a punk rock musician. Yeah. So you had to go to all the shows as the girlfriend, you and know. Was, was boring Oregon <laughs> boring? It's, uh, it's pretty boring. Um, there's not much there other than like a gas station. It's kind of a, a truck stop on your way from Portland to Mount Hood. Um, if you're going to go up and go skiing, you'll probably stop in boring and get gas on the way. Is it nature? Is it like for nature lover? Like I'm always imagining people like hiking and skiing in that part of the country. Yeah. There's a lot of like outdoor stuff to do around there. I grew up in just like a normal, like suburban neighborhood but it's a short short distance to the mountain and everything so and so why were you there like, what did your folks do were they my dad um owned his own business he restored classic cars mostly uh mustangs it was called gary's mustangs uh -uh. he just retired last year so congrats was, gary yeah <laughs> but that's congrats like, pe to him people are so into like there are people who get like super into cars and like a specific a specific model right they're like fetishists yeah i mean he did he did all kinds of classic cars but i think uh mustangs were a very popular make in the 60s and so there there's just a lot of them floating around okay because this is what i always wonder is that when a car company gets it right and sometimes they do like there is a jaguar that like i'm like that's the perfect car it looks beautiful I don't know what year it is because I don't care about cars, but <laughs> I'm just like, why did they ever stop? Like, you got it. Like, keep making the, the one that everybody loves. Don't keep trying to make it new. It never ends. And sometimes it shouldn't. Sometimes they should keep trying to perfect. But I think like when you have a hit, people like the hit. Like, put a new kind of engine in it and stuff. But the, you know, the general look I of it. I think that's what Mustang tried to do. But I don't know that I'm I'm really the person who should be like pontificating about cars because it was it was mostly like all of my family was super into cars and I was always like the oddball reading in the corner. So um, I don't have a lot of opinions on this, but but I think Mustangs in America used to be sort of like Hondas, you know, just like normal everyday car for people. And uh, now it's more like high end. I don't know that they necessarily tried to rebrand themselves that way or just that Japanese cars took over the market. Something happened. Something happened. So how many kids, <laughs> how many kids in your family? Um, I have an older brother and an older sister. Okay. And they both like cars. My, um, my brother works repairing cars still. He worked with my dad for a number of years and then now he works at a different business. Um, and my sister's husband is a car salesman or, wow owns like manages a, a dealership and you I wanted nothing to do with cars i did work in my dad's shop for one summer it was one of my first jobs um wet sanding cars that were about to be painted or were newly painted what does wet sanding mean it's exactly what it sounds like you dip sandpaper in a bucket of water and then to reduce the friction oh. and then you have to take the the you have to texturize the primer a little bit so the paint sticks to it. And then you have to, after it's painted, you have to remove the top layer, um, which is called orange peel. See, you know, you do know some stuff. So I know a little bit about painting cars because I spent a long time wet sanding them. It's expensive to get a car painted. 
Yeah. Well, and it's expensive. It was expensive at my dad's shop because it's like special hand done stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'm, I'm imagining if somebody's got a wet sand and automobile, there's a machine that you can use, but no, you're doing this by hand. There may be machines, but not at my dad's shop. <laughs> it's old school. Exactly. Okay. So you're the youngest. Mm-hmm. You're growing up in a small town in Oregon, like sort of middle of the no- middle of nowhere town or. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And, um, you now live in Los Angeles. I do. And when did you leave Oregon? And like, did you, did you nurse in childhood, like a desire to get out or was it something that just sort of happened or. Yeah, I definitely have like a lot of embarrassing journal entries about how lame my town is and how I wish that I'd grown up somewhere else. Um, when I was in middle school, my best friend and I used to exchange letters to each other from our future selves. And it was always like, like I was a famous director and she was a famous painter. We made millions of dollars on every project that we did. And um, I lived in New York City. So New York was the first place that I moved to when I got out of Oregon. Um, I left shortly after college. Where'd you go go to college? I went to college at Portland State in Portland, Oregon. Okay. So you stayed home for school. And then as soon as you graduated, you were gone. And then I, well, yeah, more or less. That's like the least complicated way to put it. But what did you study at Portland State? English. Okay. So then you knew you wanted to write or you thought you wanted to direct or? Um, I wanted to direct originally. Um, the first thing that I ever wrote was the first like full length thing was a horror movie script when I was 14. And it's actually, it wasn't a terrible, um, script, I think. What was it called? It was called Don't Turn Out the Lights. (laughs) It's a good title. (laughs) For a 14-year-old, I think it's not too bad. I think I could see that on a billboard in LA. (laughs) I mean, right? Um, It was about a young girl who every time um, the lights went out and she was surrounded by darkness, um, something violent would happen around her. So like not to her, but to somebody that she loved. So her parents died when she was a baby because they didn't know this. And then she was raised by her aunt, who I think I wrote in, like, was, like, scared of the dark for some other reason. And so, like, they worked out. And then um, one day there was a power outage and her aunt died. And so she got sent to foster care um, with a bunch of other, like, 14-year-old girls, which was my excuse to cast all of my friends in this movie that we never actually made. But, but yeah, I wanted to be a director first. um, And then... I kind of wanted to act as well, but mostly direct. And then um, the writing aspect just kind of took over because there's not in boring Oregon. There's not a lot of opportunities to practice your directing abilities, but you can write stuff. So, but it is changing. I mean, maybe not when you were uh, a teenager, but I feel like nowadays you can make a movie on your phone. Yeah, that's true. Well, and we used to make movies on my parents' camcorder, but. It's not the same. There was no editing equipment. So right. if, I mean, if like, you wanted to redo the scene, you had to rewind it and then like try it again until you got it right. Right. I mean, my daughter's nine and she like has somehow mastered these apps on our iPad where she's like, it looks, you know, they have like ready-made apps that, you know, will you can drop in music and 
effects and all this stuff. It's crazy, but she's making like movie trailers and mm-hmm. she and her friends constantly are playing with it. And I encourage it. I think that's creative. You know, it's totally, better, it's better than like, you know, whatever else they're doing on their iPads these days. But it's definitely creative. I would have killed for something like that. Yeah. So maybe the teenagers growing up in boring Oregon right now, maybe there's a burgeoning <laughs> auteur. You Potentially. Know? It's got an iPhone 11. There's four cameras on it. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you get out and you go from, well, I, I guess like the transition from boring to Portland was probably fairly seamless cause you had grown up going there. Yeah. Um, what about the transition from Portland to New York city? I mean, at that point, by the time I actually moved, I had traveled quite a bit. So I'd lived in Washington DC for a summer and, um, I'd been to Europe for like study abroad stuff. So it's, I didn't feel like completely naive but um and i moved there to go to columbia university so um moving to a city for school gives you quite a big cushion of comfort um you know you don't even have to worry about finding your own apartment for the most part so what did you what did you study at columbia creative writing oh you did okay so you got your mfa i did who did you study with um a lot of different people um, Emily Barton was one of my favorite professors. Um, and I'm still, still in touch with her. I nannied her kids for a little bit. <laughs> ah, research. Um, <laughs> I guess so. I guess you could put it that way. Um, and then I studied with Gary Steingart, um, and Jonathan D was my thesis advisor. Um, yeah, quite a, quite a few other people. Good experience. Yeah, it was a good experience overall. And did you work on devotion while you were there? No. You did not? No. What no. did you work on? I was working on a different novel that I finished and I tried to find representation for and was unable to do that. Um, it was called St. Sebastian and it was about a 14-year-old boy going to all boys Catholic boarding school um, who had this estranged relationship with his mom. And since he was becoming a teenager, his mom was taking this renewed interest in him. So it was sort of about him trying to navigate that weird relationship. Where did that come from? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I think it came from some old movies that I was really into. Um, And I guess I'd always been fascinated by boarding school because it was so far removed from my own experience. Um, But I think ultimately, like, the plot was looking at women from, like, an outsider's perspective And so for the next book, when I, you know, was unable to sell that one, I decided just to go, you know, head on looking at women from an interior perspective, I guess. Isn't it weird how we sometimes like work our way towards the thing? Yeah. I think I was circling around a lot of the same themes and like scared to actually jump into them. And isn't it brutal that you have to like write an entire novel to realize (laughs) like, oh no, I did it wrong. I got to do it. I mean... And it's, it's, it's always, almost always the case. Yeah. That's just it. Yeah. Yeah. And writing, writing a novel takes so long. That's the most frustrating thing about it. So you could be making a giant mistake, but you're not going to realize it for maybe like three years. Some encouraging words for those of you <laughs> listening at home. <laughs> um, so what about this process of taking St. Uh, Sebastian? Uh, you got an agent. 
I did not get an agent for that one. Oh, but you tried. I tried. So that was the process where you you kind of tested the waters and realized you weren't getting the feedback you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I sent it out. I didn't send it out to a huge number of people. I could have sent it out to, you know, twice as many and maybe I would have found someone. But what happened was I was getting a fair amount of rejection and um, and rejection that wasn't specific. Like I couldn't get anyone to tell me why they were rejecting it was just a lot of like, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. Um, and then I emailed Emily Barton, my professor. Um, and I said, you know, at what point am I going to know when to stop? And she told me to sit with myself for five minutes or five months and think about if this is how I really want to make my debut. And if it is, then to send it to 70 more people. And if it's not, than to, you know, start over. And as I was reading her email, I kind of already knew what the answer was. Um, so I started over. Okay. So do you know why? Can you look back and say, this is why I knew that it wasn't the right project or, the, you know, it wasn't fully formed? I think that overall there were good parts, but it doesn't come together as a whole. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to open the document now. I don't, I don't like, uh, look back at it and try and figure out, you know, where exactly the mistakes were. But when I think about the project as a whole now, I think I was 23 when I started writing it and it doesn't, um, you know, there were a lot of parts that I was kind of writing to turn it into a novel, but they didn't necessarily need to be there. Like, I think it's, if anything, I should maybe mine it for short stories at this point. Do you think you would? Maybe. I haven't thought about short stories in a while. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And then what about when you go to write uh, Devotion is the next book? Mm -hmm. You sit down to write Devotion. Did you have the idea for it? At the, at the point where you decided to abandon St. Sebastian? No, no. I spent a year um, writing one short story. Um, it was a 26-page short story. So, you yeah. know, it was a sizable thing. It take you thing. at least a year. <laughs> um, so it's okay if it takes you a long time to write one thing. But um, I spent a full year writing that one short story. And that short story was developing the character of Ella, but I didn't know it yet. Um And as I was writing that short story, I was thinking there's like a moment in it where she um, goes over to this person's house and watches somebody's child for the evening. And I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do a short story collection with stories about nannies because that's that was my day job at the time. For Emily Barton or for other people? Mm, For a lot of different people. Emily Barton was more like I watched her kids occasionally. Um and I had a couple of like more regular jobs. I was kind of running between the Upper East Side and Hell's Kitchen for a, a while. Um, watching kids. Watching kids, watching like two different families. Um, I worked for a lot of, a lot of families in New York over seven years I was nannying. That's, so, a, lot. That's a long time to do that. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> well, what I didn't realize... It was so I started I started this, you know, short story collection, which wasn't really a short story collection. It turned into a novel. And um, what I didn't realize was that it was going to take me then six years to finish it. So <laughs> so a year for the short story and then six years for the novel. Yeah. And you were mining the experiences that you are to a large extent mining experiences that you had 
working as a nanny or a caregiver for New Yorkers' children? I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. I think it was more... Um, I was imagining if something interesting were to happen at these very boring jobs that I actually worked and then taking little details from my life or from their lives or from the neighborhood or, you know, the schools and the environment, um, the playgrounds, like some of the scenes at the playgrounds really happened, but it was just me observing other people. Um, so I wouldn't say I was necessarily mining like the families that I was working for so much as just like the experience of working as a nanny in general, that world. Yeah. And, the um, like class is a concern of your book. Um, I'm sure like we were like working for wealthy families in New York. Yeah. So yeah. You see that and feel that and can speak to that. Yeah. Um, I think that I was also, um, I was feeling very angry about both like graduating from Columbia, having this huge amount of student debt and feeling like I could never really jump from like where I was to where these families that I worked for were. Um, and a lot of that anger ended up coming through in the artwork. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, student loan is, very frustrating to me. It's still very frustrating for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. Uh, I don't, I didn't have it, but I think the issue, I mean, I guess with graduate school, it's a little bit more elective, but I think that to saddle young people with a huge debt burden, right. As they're just trying to start their lives is backwards. Yep. It should be the opposite. We should be helping people get through school so that they can go out and like make their lives and participate and not be carrying that weight. Which is why we need to elect either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Both of them have plans. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, but you know, it's one thing I know that you, like a lot of that anger finds its way into art, but anger can be tricky. You know, if you're really like viscerally pissed off, it can be hard to see clearly Yeah. and hard to make art. That doesn't just sound like a rant. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, did you have to like, like wrestle with it and let yourself cool? Or did you find ways to use it that, you know, you were channeling it, but you obviously had some control. I think that a lot of the control came during the editing process towards the very end. Mm. Um, a lot of the early material was, was um, a lot angrier. And then I had to kind of find ways to realize that Ella is not the hero of the story. Um, just as, you know, I was not above any of these people that I was working for. Um, and so I needed to, to find ways for her to have her own, you know, reckoning at the end. Was it an interesting job? I mean, like you said, you said it was boring because <laughs> it's like pretty mundane. Your childcare is not super sexy work. Like it's a lot of like repetitive tasks and you're having conversations with four-year-olds, Yeah, which yeah. like it can be really funny and touching and there can be, you know, there's a lot of, um, goodness. I, you know, I don't know, just as a dad, I feel it, but I'm imagining like interacting with children can be rewarding. 
I think that you have to like it's a, it's a strange position because it's a position where you have to actually like love the people that you work with otherwise it doesn't work. Um and it's one of the only jobs I can think of where that's like a necessary requirement because if you don't love the child that you're watching then it's just a lot of like them whining to take the seeds out of uh the watermelon every single day or cut the crust off of the peanut butter sandwich that you're making for the, you know, hundredth time. Um, but I did, you know, I did love all of the kids that I worked with. Um, kids are easy. It's the adults that are. Yeah. Problems. <laughs> um, and I worry cause like, you know, we have two kids, we have childcare, um, or we've had it, you know, and I think any, most parents have a babysitter or something at some point. Yeah, uh, you have to. You have to. It's a necessary thing. But I do think to myself relatively often, I'm like, what does she think of us? Because <laughs> like, you're also getting to observe, like, because, you know, it's your job. You check in, you check out. It's a lot of work, but you go, you know, it's not your kid. Yeah. Uh, as a parent, it's your kid. You're never off duty, really. Right. Even though you're not, you're not like with them in person all the time. And I feel like you have more of a removed perspective for that reason. You're not as, you can't be as emotionally invested. Of course you can't be because you know that it's going to end at some point. Yeah. But it's always hard when it actually does Yeah, because you do, you know, you do bond with these children, especially some of the children that I was watching. Um, you know, I'd be watching them for 10 hours a day, five days a week, which is like probably in a lot of cases, more time than their parents actually spent with them. Yeah. But, but, but like we should be, to be fair, cause I always, I feel this as a dad, it's like by necessity. Oh, of course. No, I, I, gotta, I don't mean that in a judgmental way, like whatsoever. Um, and honestly, like both of the families that I was working for that much were some of the loveliest parents to work for, which was why I was capable of working with their children for that long. Cause they were, you know, they were doing the work of, of raising them as well when I wasn't around. I'm, okay. I, I have, <laughs> I have questions uh -huh. like what, from the perspective of a nanny or caregiver, do you look for in parents? Like what, what would qualify as being a parent who's lovely to work for or, and is, you know, parenting in a way that feels good. I mean, you can kind of tell when a parent is actually invested in their child, when they, you know, when they, want to spend quality time with their child for whatever amount of time that they have versus a parent that kind of like comes home late because they were walking around because they didn't want to put the kid to bed, even though they were, you know, fully capable of doing it. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's easy. It would be easier for me to give you examples of terrible behavior that I experienced Please, from parents. Let me hear just to make but sure I got to see I don't if know I that I should, I don't know that I should do that. <laughs> you don't have to give names. That doesn't. Um, all right. I mean, I guess I, I wrote about some of this stuff in essays, so it doesn't really like come as a, a complete shock. Um, but you know, there was, there was an example of a, a parent who was just consistently like an hour and a half late every single day and, um, would never, you know, give any warning to either the child or me. So we'd be sitting around every single day for an hour and a half being like, where's your mom? I don't know. Um, including on like special, special days, special occasions like Halloween or like, um, the day that he bought a bike, um, 
where I just feel like she missed a lot of the basic experiences of like raising this child. Um, yeah. I don't know how much, how much more I should say. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I get it. And like, I don't know. It's just, I feel like parenthood is like, you know, like, so I guess many things in life are like this, but it can feel like drinking from a fire hose, like life when you're having to manage, <laughs> it's like you're trying to manage day job, side hustle, um, taking yeah, care still of yourself. maintaining friendships to a, still a certain maintaining extent, friend, which is but, important. And, but I mean, relatively difficult to say the least. Yeah. Like there's only so many hours in a day and then you're, I think parents are often depleted like the end of a of work course. day. And then you're just like, I got to go home and I got to be like, I got to be on. Yep. And sometimes you're just like, I just need to like stand outside for a moment <laughs> in a day. <laughs> Definitely. No, I understand that. I understand that. I guess what I'm getting at is not so much. It, these aren't like quantifiable things where you can tell that a parent is invested based on, you know, the amount of time that they spend with them. But there's, there's parents that feel like they had the children because it was expected of them and because it's sort of a status symbol among their, their culture, their society. And then there's parents that you feel like they actually are invested in these little people as people. Yeah. I hope I'm doing a good job. (laughs) I'm sure you are. (laughs) I worry. I want to do a good job, but I'm like, you know, I, I, I also hesitate to like, like, I feel like, I feel like I now need to make all of these caveats to this conversation because I'm not a parent yet. Like I've spent an absurd amount of time with children, but not being a parent, you know, I've always been able to go home and get a good night's sleep for the most part. Um, And I think that that definitely allows you this level of like objectivity that parents just don't get. And I feel very sympathetic towards that. It's humbling. And, you know, sometimes people who don't have kids, um, will like give like advice or make an observation and it might not even be inaccurate, but there's always like a little voice in my head. That's like, wait till you have. Some. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, and I have no idea what kind of a, maybe I'd be a terrible parent. Like I think I was a pretty good nanny, but I value my sleep, so yeah. it's possible anything could happen. <laughs> anything, Who knows? Yeah. I mean, especially those first few years, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna sleep the way you once did. And then it sounds like you're open to having kids after doing all this work. Cause that was another natural question after spending this much time in the company of young children and taking care of them, you know, I could go one of two ways. It would seem like where you're like, okay, I got my, I got my taste of this. It's not for me, or this is redeeming and fun. And I think I would enjoy giving it a shot. Well, I miss being around kids now. I do still work with kids, but, um, you know, for not nearly as many hours and in a totally different capacity. What do you do? I teach creative writing to kids. Oh, cool. Um, through this school program called Writopia Lab. And, um, it's a really great program. It operates on a sliding scale. So I get to work with like a really wide variety of children. Um, but it's for like, you know, hour and a half classes and we're, we're writing together and we're doing exercises. So it's really, it's not the same capacity as like observing them at home or playing with them. Um, and I do, I miss being around them. Can I say something? I'm going to say something that might be controversial. I think like if I had my druthers, I would be a full-time dad. Yeah. Taking care of kids is hard work. No question about it. It can be draining. It requires a lot of you. 
you have to be organized. You have to be patient. I mean, all of it, like it's a, it's a job in its own way. It is not nearly as bad as working a nine to five, especially if you're working a nine to five in like an environment or in a corporate situation that is really draining and oh, totally. like FaceTime and, you know, having to perform in front of the boss and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I reject wholeheartedly the notion that they are equal. Like working with kids is a pain in the ass, but if, especially if they're your own kids, Oh yeah, it is so emotionally rewarding. It's like, yeah, it's a job, but if we all got to work a job, like that's one of the best jobs ever. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed my years nannying. Um, There were definitely things to complain about along the way, but um, overall, I think it was a great job that probably pays more than adjunct teaching, which was kind of my other. Adjunct, adjunct that I teaching, was qualified for. It doesn't pay shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I adjuncted for five years. I was like, what is going on? Like, yeah. It's like, it's a, like, that's right up there with student loans and the, you know, something, there's something like. It's a scam. It's a scam. Yeah. It's criminal. <laughs> Somebody should be in jail for this. But, yes. you know, it's a, it's a tough racket. The whole academia thing is tough. You know, it's like, there's all these people who are qualified for a very small number of jobs, which is, you know, because mm-hmm. people want, I think people just or like a certain kind of person anyway wants to live a life of the mind or never leave school or not be in a corporate environment basically. Yeah. So you have people who are drawn to like academia and whatever, you know, which is great because corporate environments are awful, but yeah, something needs to be done about adjuncts need to unionize or something. Right. We got to figure it out. Nannies need to unionize. Like that too. Here, okay, so here's what I think. Um, minimum wage. I, I don't know if I have the math exactly accurate, but I want to say I read something like multiple years ago that minimum wage adjusted for inflation should actually be twenty seven dollars an hour. Oh yeah, no, it it hasn't changed. Like if you take inflation into account, I don't think it's changed in like twenty years. Yeah, I mean, but what is it? What is it? It's like eight dollars an hour. It's very low. It's up in the city. You know, cities are bumping it up to ten or fifteen or twelve or whatever it is. You know, but it's uh, it's low. It's, yeah, it's way too low for what a normal, you know, human being needs to get by. Like nobody can. Who can live on seven fifty an hour? Exactly. Unless you live in a place that is like you know has an unusually low cost of living. I think even then, it's not really possible. But how much leverage, I guess in a place like New York City, you know, if you're taking care of people's kids and the people are wealthy, they can afford to pay a decent rate. But decent rate is in quotes because you're living in one of the most expensive places. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's difficult because um, they have to pay you less than they make, of course. You know, like there's a job that has like necessary financial restrictions. You can you can only make a certain amount for it to be worth it to them to continue working. So it's, yeah. otherwise they would just stay home with the kids. So, I mean like a significant percentage of our monthly income goes to childcare. Yeah. I think that's how most parents, but childcare is insanely expensive in this country as well. We should, we're just like getting into a lot of it's good. <laughs> political it's good. stuff that, uh, <laughs> needs, needs fixing, but it's well, true. It's interesting though, because, uh, you, know, you can start to you know do the math as a married couple, and you're like, wait a minute, like one of us should just stop working and take care of the kids, 
because I'm going to work and basically my whole paycheck is paying for somebody to watch our kids while I'm at work. Yep. Working for somebody or doing something that I don't want to do. Right. So anyway, I'm fascinated. Like I, you know, having, I have a nine year old and a four year old. And so I'm moving through this phase of like intensive childcare. So to, uh-huh. to talk to somebody who, you know, uh, worked in those jobs and has written a book where there's characters, you know, living and working in that world. It's fascinating to me because I often <laughs> have questions and I sit around wondering, like, I don't want to be, I want to be really good to work for and with, you know, and you're, it's such an intimate thing. You're in their house. And I'm wondering, like, I hope she likes us. <laughs> I hope she hasn't seen anything she feels is questionable. You know? I mean, I will say for the most part, she's probably thinking, like, I hope that they continue to like me, you know, enough to trust me with their children. So yeah. uh, I, it goes both ways. Okay. Yeah. The anxiety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So you start to write devotion. And what about, was there, were there market differences in the creative and the writing process compared to St. Sebastian? Like, did you notice it? Was there a level of, like, I feel like with my own writing experiences, there have been drafts that didn't work out. And then the draft that did, there was like a heightened focus or something. Almost like I tried harder or maybe, (laughs) maybe the the material was more engaging or the stakes felt higher. And I was like, okay, I got to get this right. I cannot write another one that doesn't work. The stakes were definitely higher. Um, before I sent devotion out to agents. Um, so when I was just, you know, starting this process of like thinking about getting it published, um, I made a list in my journal that said like, okay, if this book doesn't sell and it's like, it's just a, a list of other career options. Like what? Like, um, go back to school to get a teaching certificate so that I could teach English in, in high school. Or, um, um, to be honest, I don't remember because the book did sell. So Thank God <laughs> I didn't, didn't have to pursue any of these <laughs> options. I think one of them, I, they were like ridiculous stuff. Like I think one of them was like, you know, work at a bakery or something like that. Um, these like ideal ideas that we have that it's going to be like one thing and then it never is. It feels like a Nora Ephron movie or something. For right. Some reason. Yeah. But yeah. it's, it's not, it's just getting up at four in the morning every day. <laughs> making, making bread. <laughs> I do like baking. So that's probably where that came from. But, um, so I had this, this list because I definitely felt like I was, so I was 30 when I sent the book out and I do want to have kids someday. So I was thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, like I have to get another career and I have to get it fast because I had no money. I had no, you know, no savings. You can't fund childcare based on what someone else is paying you for childcare. Um, it's really difficult to be a nanny with your own children in a, especially a place like New York. So I, you know, the stakes were very high. The stakes were also very high because I knew that if the book got published, I wasn't going to be able to be a nanny anymore either. Cause it doesn't really, um, bode well for someone to be able to Google your name and then like creepy obsession story kind of comes up. (laughs) You wrote your way right out of that line of work. (laughs) Exactly. Which was very terrifying. And I was also thinking like, as I was writing it, like, I think I'm writing the one book that like my boss wouldn't want me to write. Um, which felt very different from St. Sebastian because, you know, nobody cares if I'm writing about like this very obviously fictional 14 year old boy. 
um, that I've never been and have never even known. You know, that was it was just such a clearly fictional story. And devotion is fictional as well. Um, You know, Lonnie and James are not based on anyone that I worked for. But Ella's feelings kind of went back and forth between like things that I experienced versus fictional feelings. Um, So it was definitely higher risk in a lot of ways. Well, and it's it's like personal. And I think you're dealing with I think it's just closer to the bone, like not only in terms of like your day to day and what you've been up to and the people you were working for and whatnot, but also that anger and the things that were activating you Mm -hmm. emotionally, even if it didn't necessarily express itself at all times. Yeah, definitely. You know, and so did you feel like the people when you were working in that line of work, was there sensitivity to any of that? Like, I guess you don't have conversations around that. It's probably awkward for both parties. Um, I've kept in touch with some of the families that I worked for and for the most part, they've all been like really, really supportive and understanding. Um, I had to send an email to the family that I worked for on the Upper East Side, like right before we were about to announce the sale, just saying like, Hey, by the way, this is what I was working on because I didn't tell them anything at the time about it. Um, other families, I was a little bit more like I was still vague, but like upfront about it. Like I would, I would phrase it like, "Oh, I'm working on a novel about like female friendship and like jealousy and and um, sort of obsessive feelings and stuff like that and like class differences," which is all true. I didn't mention the fact that like it was a nanny and an employer, but <laughs> <laughs> details, details. <laughs> but I also think like I don't know, I. If you're, if you know that I'm a writer, like you might expect that, you know, little details get put in, in this fictional way. Most people get it. Yeah. I think if you really are like grafting experiences almost verbatim that are unflattering, like that could potentially ruffle some feathers. Right. I think in general, people like to be written about. Well, and then I had other, another family that like worked for and I like told them what the premise was and I was like, but don't worry. You know, I always, you know, phrased it with this caveat, like you're not in it. It's not about you. And they were sort of like, Oh, like right right about us. Like, why aren't we in it? Are we not interesting enough? Right. Yeah. You were the boring family. (laughs) So what about the sales process? So you do get an agent with this novel. Mm -hmm. Um, you had written in your journal, all these different like careers that you were going to have. And then we sort of stopped there. So then you go out to agents. So I sent it to 10 agents initially thinking, and I was sort of settling in for this long process because when I had sent St. Sebastian out, it had taken, you know, at least three months to hear back from anybody. Um, and so I would send it out in batches, then wait a few months and then remind everyone that I existed and then wait a few more months before they actually got back to me. Um, so it took like a full year before I stopped sending it out just to like get all of the responses back. Um, with this one, I sent it out to 10 people and within 48 hours, I had somebody interested, which was totally shocking not what i expected what was the book called devotion it was at the time it was called small night which is from a pablo neruda uh, line in one of his poems that i sort of reference in the book um and i was originally going to use that line as um you know the quote at the beginning but we changed it 
because I kept, well, for a number of reasons, but like I kept having to answer like, oh, it's like, it's night, like nighttime, not like a small, like night in shining armor. (laughs) And that was very frustrating because that gives you the really the wrong idea if you hear, if you hear it the wrong way. So, so, but the book went out agent within 48 hours is interested. What about the other nine? Well, the one that was interested, I, at first I didn't end up signing with, I think that she would have done a really good job, but I then I send an email out to all the other agents saying like, Hey, I have an offer. So like, please respond by next Friday. And I got another agent interested right away as well. And she's the one that I went with. Um, her name's Stephanie Delman and she's amazing. She's been the world's best agent so where is she at? like is she at her own shingle or is she at an agency she's with uh sanford jake greenberger okay and um, how, did, how did you pick like when you were going out and thinking about who to send to were you like looking in the acknowledgement sections of novels that you had liked or something or did you have friends from columbia who were guiding you some of it was some of my friends agents um because at that point i had quite a few classmates who had gotten published already so um some of them were people that i had a connection to. Um, and then Columbia also has this party for alumni every year where they invite, um, anyone looking for an agent and then they invite a bunch of agents to the, the most awkward cocktail party <laughs> that you can ever imagine. I'm like, I just broke out into a light sweat yeah. thinking about this. You're supposed to come prepared with your one sentence pitch and then your paragraph long pitch. And it's basically just like, like not eating any of the food because you don't want to have anything stuck in your teeth and like only drinking white wine. Cause you don't want to get the, like the, the purple red. teeth yeah, yeah. and going around and, um, we would do it kind of in groups for moral support. So like you get two friends and you kind of go around and say like, <laughs> well, they're novel and you'd bring each other up. Um, what was your one sentence pitch? Oh God, I don't even remember. Uh, what I remember was everyone saying, Oh, so single white female. And I, and I hadn't even seen single white female at the time. So I was just like, yeah, right. (laughs) I did go home and watch it and it's not like, it's, you know, it has to do with like kind of women stealing each other's identities, but so does a lot of, uh, you know, cultural moments. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Of course not. Right. I mean, um, but it, it wasn't a major influence for me, me writing it, um, but anyway, so it's this this terrible cocktail party. Everyone has color-coded name tags. And that particular year, um, they made the writer's name tags white and the agent's name tags a very, very light powder blue. And so in this darkly lit room, <laughs> no one could tell who was an agent and who was a writer. And, um, you know, and it's a lot of years of alumni. So I didn't know all of the other writers. Um, so you're kind of like going up to people being like, am I supposed to talk to you? (laughs) And sometimes they'd be like, no, don't waste your time. I'm a writer. But you didn't get your agent through that process. I, that is where I first met her. Oh, wow. Um, I don't think that she remembered me by the time I emailed her the manuscript. Um, cause I went to that party maybe a year and a half before I actually sent the book out. Um, cause I thought I was going to be done with it sooner than I was, which is, you know, always the case. What's the name of the party? Is there like an official name? 
It's the Columbia Agent Mixer, I think. Okay. So for anybody out there who's listening and is super unethical, the querying agents, you could just be like, yeah, we met at the Columbia Mixer. Right. Right. <laughs> um, they might realize that you don't have your MFA from there. But if you have your MFA from there, you should go to this party because it is, it is helpful as like horrible as it is. Well, I mean, yeah, I was just thinking like they didn't do anything like that in my MFA program. It is a really nice thing that they do. That's in New York. And they are good agents who show up to it, too. Sure. It's not It's not like agents are always trying to find new people. So That's right. I mean, yeah. And it's good to lay eyes on people. Like, I always, you know, some people find agents over the transom and it works out. But I'm always like, that's so weird to me. To like, like you're going to represent me in business and we're going to be, you're going to get a cut of whatever <laughs> success we have and... This is the thing that's like most important to me professionally and is like super deeply tied to who I am, like mm -hmm. deeper than most work, I would say. Of course. You, you yeah. Know? And I've never seen you before, but let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's one of the reasons why I was really happy that I was still living in New York um, when this happened. And I also I sold the book. So my agent sent it out to editors and I sold the book to my editor right before I moved to Los Angeles. Like Were you it, planning on coming out here? I was already planning on moving out here and I had no idea that the timing would work out this way. It was really strange because I sold the book like two days before I left to move here. Well, how did the process go? You fin like you work on some revisions with uh, Stephanie? Yeah, I went through two rounds of revisions with Stephanie um, and then she said it was ready and she sent it out... Um, the week of my birthday and March 15th, which is March 15th, which we discussed it during sound check. <laughs> I'm a Pisces. <laughs> we can talk about that too. But, um, and I got, so I was out with friends. It was in, it was another 48 hours later and I was out with friends, um, for my birthday the night before. And I woke up to my agent texting, emailing, and like calling me like practically just all at the same time, um, saying like Megan Lynch wants to talk. Oh my goodness. That's a good editor. Yeah. So that, that's the editor that, that bought the book. That's good for you. Yeah. How did you I've feel when you with. get this you're in bed, like reading your phone? I was shocked because she had also told me like, don't expect to hear anything until next week. And it, it was, uh, two days later, it was on a Friday. Um, so I was, you know, I was not, not prepared for it whatsoever. It, it usually goes fast when it's good news. I guess so. I, I think sometimes though, um, I also, my friend, Karen, um, Karen Havlin, who I'm going to plug her book, it's called, please read this leaflet carefully. And she got her agent the same week as I did. And she sold her book like the same week that I sold my book as well. So you'll probably both have children the same week. <laughs> You're on the same path. I hope so. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> but um, she, it took her three years to find her agent. So yeah. like things happened very quickly, you know, once she found someone to represent her, but it can also take an extraordinarily long amount of time. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. But when she finally found the agent that she wanted, I wonder how long it took for that agent to respond and to say, let's do this. Yeah. I can't tell you that. I don't know. I just think, I think like when it comes to the transactional part of it, whether it's like an agent signing, you know, signing you up or it's a publisher making an offer on your book, that's what usually happens fast. Yeah. When things are good. When you actually find that, that one person that like believes in your project enough. And it, w it would make sense if they really like it and they want to publish it. Like why dawdle, you right. know? And if, if you're not getting those kinds of responses, then it can start to get sad. Yeah. Well, and I, I also think that there's something to be said for 
timing the way that I timed things because they were trying to sell the book um, right before some kind of conference or something like that. Like there's there's weird timing things that we as writers don't know or Why? understand or Why? hear about. People should tell us. <laughs> I, I need to have somebody on here who can explain all of this. I've had like, you know, conversations like very intermittently. It's, it tends to happen with somebody like who had like a super crazy, it was like sold at auction and was made the number one title. And it seems like you got maybe, did you, did you get a preempt or did you, did you auction the book? It went up for auction. Oh, it, it did. did. Yeah. And we held the auction on a day where there was a big snowstorm in New York. And this is another just like weird timing story. So apparently there's this job for people called book scouts and i don't fully it's a very mysterious job i don't fully understand what they do i've met the scout that works with my agent she's very lovely um but they kind of just keep their ear to the ground for like hot gossip i should be a book scout for god's (laughs) sake somebody should hire me pay me on a freelance basis well there you go you Uh, should all i do is look at books and talk to writers try to get the hot gossip on yeah yeah exactly Um, and so she said that we needed to like go through with the auction despite the giant snowstorm because there was going to be another like hot book that landed the following week on, on Monday, like out to market on all of these editors desks. Interesting. And so we needed to like, you know, get it over with before they found out about the next, the next book. I don't know what book that was. Well, thank goodness for this book. Scout. <laughs> Sleuthing. For, like, why did she sleuth on your behalf? Just being nice? Or? I think she, she, I don't know that she works for my agency, but she's like a connection with them in yeah. some capacity, at least. It's amazing. It's how, all very mysterious to me. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, A, it's mysterious. B, it's so fickle. Mm-hmm. It can go one way or the other. Oh, totally. It's about timing. And it's not just like market timing and knowing when the big conference is or whatever. It's also just like mysterious mystical timing like you you know timing of the universe stars Mm -hmm. being aligned right getting a book in front of somebody who's just kind of in the mood for it or was looking for this particular kind of story oh totally wanted to publish a novel with uh unreliable uh narrator characters female friendship you know what i'm saying oh totally yeah then if somebody especially if it goes goes out and then there's quickly somebody interested then the others want it and all of a sudden you're sitting there and it's a blizzard and there's an auction. <laughs> and what are you thinking? Are you, are you thrilled? I was, I was thrilled. I was, um, no one had talked about like numbers at all. And so I had, you know, I still had no idea what was going to happen until, until the auction actually happened. Well, how does it actually work? They're just, there's like a conference call and they're just like, they're phoning in offers. I think there was a, there was a deadline. So it was like, you have to get your offer in at, by like noon on this day. And then every interested editor submitted their offer. Um, and I got, um, I got a few offers and two of them were, I was like debating whether to go with Dunton or Echo and Dunton was offering slightly more money. But um, I wanted to go with the literary, the more like traditionally literary press. Why? Because I think it's important for this particular book um, to not, or at least I thought this at the time, you know, I don't know whether it's turned out or not, but um, 
I thought it was important to not label it strictly suspense because it doesn't have um, a traditional ending. So I thought if we label it strictly suspense, if people are going into it thinking that they're picking up girl on the train or something like that, they're going to be massively disappointed. So that's why that seems like sound logic. That's why I went with echo in the end. Um, and it, you know, it all worked out. The book is lovely. It's got an extra good. It's got, <laughs> I mean, you. it's a good book. It's got a really great cover too. Like they did a good job. They did do a good job on the cover, which you want, yeah. you know, you want people to take care of it. It doesn't always happen, Yeah. but it's striking. Um, and the experience, like the editorial process, once you were, uh, on board went well, I would imagine. Yeah. I went through another two rounds of edits with Megan. Um, so that brought me up to eight rounds of edits overall, which I, by the the last round, I was sort of like, I don't, I, I can't look I at can't this look thing at anymore. This, <laughs> you get to a point where like, can somebody else edit this please? Yeah. Just make it, <laughs> just do with it whatever you want. Just make it good. And that's not including, you know, the copy edits and the proofs and like everything that came after that. But those at least are, are much faster. And did you have to go through multiple covers? I mean, I'm assuming there was some sort of like design process. We had, we hired an illustrator to design this cover that I really loved. Um, and then there was a sales meeting and they decided that that couldn't be the cover. And so they started looking at like photographic images and, um, the sunglasses one, the one with the, that we ended up with was the last one that they showed me. Hmm. And everyone at that point, I was sort of like, I don't know, like, I'm just so anxious about the whole process. I have no idea what's going to sell the best. And my agent and editor and like everyone agreed that that was the cover. And I was like, well, I trust you guys. So that's what ended up happening. I was like, I was just too full of anxiety to make a decision at that point. Were you there in person? No, this was all through email and over the phone. So I was already in Los Angeles at that point. Oh, you were. And so, and so what prompted the move to Los Angeles? My boyfriend got a job out here. <laughs> oh, well, that'll do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, does he work in entertainment? He, he was, yeah, he was working as a, a camera operator, like kind of doing freelance stuff. But, um, now he's a cafe manager for the moment, but he's thinking about going back to school to study CGI. So this is definitely the place to be yeah. for many reasons. Absolutely. And do you like it? I don't want to spend too much time on the New York, LA, like, you know, <laughs> comparison, but I always, I have to ask. What I've been saying to everyone is, um, my like very polite thing, which is to say, I don't, I don't think I've bonded with it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a, how long have you been here? I've been here a year and a half and, um, I guess a little over, a little over a year and a half. And, um, I'm living downtown, which I don't love. So I think it might be a matter of like switching neighborhoods to really feel more comfortable. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a million cities packed into one. Exactly. You got to find your place. Yeah. Um, and then what about like movie rights and stuff like that for this book? I could see that. Is that something you're pursuing or has that happened? I'm not allowed to talk about that yet. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's classified. <laughs> it's classified information. What does that mean? I can't tell you what that means. <laughs> we haven't, we, we can't, we can't, we can't discuss it. So something could happen. <laughs> yes. But it's something not, it's not could done, potentially done. happen. Interesting. Are there any celebrities involved? No, no. Not yet. I'm going to ask questions just around the edges, <laughs> just for the listener's sake. Um, but there are people interested. 
there are people interested. That's a, that's multiple a, parties. A, um, <laughs> I, no, I'm going to say no. There's 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 a little bit of interest. We'll see what happens. Would you like to direct? No. <laughs> Would you like to write the adaptation? Honestly, no, no. I'm I'm working on a second novel right now, and I'm mostly interested in just like moving on from this project. I also think, like, despite having written a screenplay at 14, that I'm not a qualified uh, screenplay writer. Um, maybe someday I could get more into that. But at the moment, I think it would be better off and more experienced. You, hands. you wrote, don't turn out the lights. You dropped, you dropped the <laughs> microphone and that was it. I'm like I'm done. That was it. I've mastered this form. <laughs> um, and what's the next book about? Um, it's, it's a suspense story as well, but with a little bit more of a supernatural horror twist. Hmm. Um, but still in the literary, you know, vein. So, yeah, you so see, you're trying to walk this line between like, uh, you know, just, these are, um, kind of generic categorizations, but like literary and commercial, is that conscious or is that just like, that's just your taste? Like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, we all know that most literary fiction doesn't find a huge audience. Right. So if you want to make a living at this, you got to find an audience. I think it's more so a matter of taste for me. Because I like stuff with plot, but I, and you know, maybe more commercial plot, I should say, I should specify because of course, literary fiction has plots as well, but I also, uh, yeah, sometimes (laughs) I also like, um, things that maybe don't have traditional, uh, plot outcomes or, or I like anticlimaxes. I like, you know, weird endings that get cut off and make you think. Um, so I want to have something that makes readers ask, I want to produce something. And I also want to watch and, you know, consume things that make you think, um, but also entertain you at the same time. Do you have some, like, like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, you know, your little personal pantheon of movies or books that you feel like informed your sensibility that you look to with like reverence that you keep like nearby. Yeah, definitely. Um, for this book in particular, for Devotion, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about Elena Ferrante. Um, she definitely, you know, walks that that fine line between. It's very entertaining. It's like compulsively readable, and at the same time, like makes you think about all kinds of things. Um, on a, in a very different vein, also Alexandra Clemens, um, you two can have a body like mine. I've was, had Alexandra on the show. She's great. I, but, I know her from Columbia, but she's, um, I, I just was really inspired by that book and how, how the girls relate to each other and see each other and use each other. Um, it's a very, very different book than the one I ended up writing, but thematically there's definitely good, some crossover. <laughs> I actually wrote a book almost identical to Alexander Clemens and sold it at auction. Um, I want to ask you about girls. And again, I'm going to like make this uh, personal. <laughs> um, is I'm, I'm interested in knowing about, I guess, you know, I, I'm thinking of my daughter and I'm thinking of the conversations that we have when she comes home from school. And she's still, she's nine. So she hasn't like turned the corner yet Mm -hmm. out of like being a little girl, but it's getting close Mm -hmm. and it's sort of, there's a certain feeling of dread I have. Yeah. Cause like there's some dark memories from nine. I think, I feel like that's, that's an age where, well, it's just starting to get petty. Like kids can be mean. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And these relationships, she like, 
because like she's also very chatty and she you know she talks to me like earlier it was hard to get her to talk about what happened at school she was like ah we played Mm -hmm. what happened at school oh we played and that was really the truth yeah that's all they did and now it's like oh well so-and-so elbowed me on the playground i think it was an accident (laughs) but then i think it was on purpose and then she said that like I have like a weird face and, you know, and then you're like, Oh my God. And like, and, and like, these are her friends. Like these, uh-huh. are, this isn't like her enemy. These are like her buddies. Yep. And I'm like, what kind of, cause I don't remember, I guess like as a little boy, boys can be mean too, but maybe not like at that level of psychological intensity. Right. Like female friendships or girl friendships. It's like, I turn my wife sometimes. I'm like, what, what do I say to this? Like, I just kind of let it wash over me and I'm like, it'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Middle school is intense. Um, there's an intensity though. That's, that's runs alongside what we usually talk about, which is how like manipulative and like, uh, scary little girls can be. Um, the good friendships, like the, the intensity of your early friendships in middle school with your, you know, your best girlfriends is also like really intensely amazing at the same time. Um, there's definitely like a, a fine line between that amazingness can very suddenly turn to like the most awful thing you've ever experienced. (laughs) But, um, but also, you know, you don't have to dread this, too much okay good <laughs> talk me off the ledge <laughs> she'll be okay she'll, she'll, be okay. she'll make it out she's a she'll, and she'll make better friends in high school you know do you because i feel like women are i think women generally and i've said this before especially as we age like you get to my age women i just notice it are just way better at maintaining and nurturing friendships men have a hard time or at least I do. Well, men have a hard time talking about their feelings. I can right? talk about my feelings. Maybe that's why all the guys are like, dude, chill. <laughs> this isn't your podcast, Brad. I'm just trying to have a beer. Um, but, you know, I just, it's not that I don't have friends. I have plenty of friends, but just like, we don't do very much together. Yeah. Women do shit together. Yeah, we do do stuff together. And you talk. And like, well, guys, it's like, oh, hey, man, like you're at like a kid's birthday party. It's good to see you, you know? And it is good to see. Well, you. and guys, I find that guys will talk more about like, um, and this is obviously like gross stereotyping here because you know gender things can fall in right. many camps. Yeah. But um, a lot of the guys that I've known over the years have sort of come up to their friends and said like, "Oh, did you read that article? And like, what do you think about this?" And and so the conversations are more about like current events. And whereas like I'll be off with my girlfriends on the other side of the room, being like, "Oh my god!" Like, listen to what happened um, in our relationship, and like we'll get into like really deep emotional stuff like all the time you talk about the guys like you're in a relationship you're like i'll never believe what he did yeah and they're like on the other side of the room we talk about it all the time (laughs) guys don't talk about any like i never i mean maybe a little bit like oh you know we had a fight or things are crazy okay occasionally i'll get a little bit of that but guys don't talk about that it's interesting that you bring this up though because i have recently made an internal policy it's kind of like an experiment but i am for the foreseeable future, going to scrupulously avoid talking about anything related to my professional life <laughs> with anybody in a small talky, like, you know, party, dinner party environment. I'm never going to ask anybody, what do you do? Unless yeah. it's, I guess, on this show, just because it's like, it comes up. But 
I'm just going to try to only talk about like their life. Like what's going on in your life? How are you doing? Yeah. You know, like what's, I want to get beyond that. I can't stand that superficial layer of adult conversation that reduces us all, bores most of us. And I just, it just bothers me. Well, it's very capitalist as well. Like yeah. defining someone based on their job. I'm not talking immediately. To, yeah. I'm just, and, and if like a good, a good enough friend, if I'm talking to a friend and it can be, you know, I can say it without offending. I'm just going to be like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Like we're moving on. Save that for somebody else. I don't want to talk about what happened at the office or whatever deal you closed or who gives a shit. Yeah. We're going to die. I, I made a, a different but similar goal a while ago to stop coming up to other women and like opening the conversation with, oh, my God, like I love, you know, whatever about your appearance. Right. Um, because there's a lot more interesting things to talk about than like where they got their boots. Right. Even though sometimes I really want to know where they got their boots. <laughs> where did you get the- boots are kind of interesting. I'll ask them about their boots. <laughs> you ask them about their career. Yeah. We'll switch, but. I don't know. I just like, I like, you know, I wish I could have more conversations like I have, like we're having right now. Um, but I guess like there's a control issue involved because there's this context of I'm interviewing you. You Sure. Well, you already know what I do. So yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, like day-to-day life in most every instance can accommodate this. Yeah. Because we don't have our phones right now, but usually we do. There aren't kids around. We're not in a crowded place where it's hard to hear. There's not like a waiter interrupting. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It's just hard to have yeah. a conversation. Yeah. I mean, I do find when there's kids around, conversations get very funny um, because the kids will interrupt, but also because like what adults do when there's there's kids in the room is just like look at the kids and then like gossip about them. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Because wa- you know they're not listening. <laughs> my wife is in, like we have a friend who is uh, of Mexican descent and she's doing her birthday party in Mexico city, just like going away for the weekend. And she's like, who wants to come? And a bunch of people were like, we'll come. Nice. Yeah. So it's like, of course I'm not there, but, um, but anyway, she was, I was texting with my wife and she's like, yeah, you know, we all got away for the weekend without our kids, which is like unheard of or very difficult. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we spent the first night just talking about our kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Of course. So. Well, I mean, even as a nanny, when I would go home after nannying, I would be like telling stories about the kids. I would be sometimes find myself like watching the videos that I took of them during the day. And I wasn't even their parent. It's right. just it's this like human fascination thing. It's good work. I mean, I mean it in the sense that like it's noble and um, it gives you something like, you know, like you did, like, even though it's this temporary passage that you have, like. I feel an enormous amount of affection for the caregivers who have taken care of my babies. Like, Oh yeah. As a parent, you're like, you know, you have to trust that person. And when you find somebody that you can trust and who your kid likes and you're leaving them in their care for like, we haven't, um, my son is disabled. So he has an aide who Mm. goes to school with him. And I mean, she goes to therapy with him. She takes him to ride horses and stuff. Like she's with him all the time. Yeah. And so it's like the fact that she's so good and cares so much and is like so on it. It's like, that's gold. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, when you can find that. But it's not always easy. And I think back to the um, this the nanny that we had for my daughter. She was 40 years old, I want to say, and unexpectedly and unintentionally got pregnant, mm. which was really upsetting to her because that's her livelihood. Yeah. And she was like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to have to raise a baby. And like, just like you were saying, Sylvia, she was 
unbelievably great. I guess that's why we need to unionize. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, but like we were like, and like we were sort of new parents ourselves. It was just Evan at that point, my daughter. And I was like, I, I guess I was maybe not as sensitive to it as I should have been, but she was also like a complete rock. She did. We were like, you can take off, you know, like she said, mm. no. And it turned out that she had been told by her doctor that something was horribly wrong with her child in utero. Oh, no. And she was like religious and was like, I'm not, you know, I'm carrying it to term no matter what. But there was like the organs are on the outside of the body sort of stuff, like crazy, like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. You know, it was like, it was like I, d- I doubt that was the thing, but, <laughs> but you know, I, it was just like, it was horror. It was horrific. You know, the way she's explaining it to me, you uh-huh. know, she had a scheduled C-section and she worked until seven o'clock the night before her scheduled C-section, like taking care of our kid. Oh my God. By her insistence. I think she was so nervous about it that she wanted to work. Like, like sitting yeah. at home was the, like the last thing she wanted, just sitting quietly. She wanted to be busy. Yeah. But we were just like, I cannot believe she's doing this. We kept being like, go, go, go. She had the baby. The baby turned out to be healthy. And she was like very spiritual. She was like, it was because of your daughter and like, you know, somehow like the, you know. Wow. It wasn't because of our daughter, but you know what I'm saying? What a story. Yeah. But I think back on that and I'm just like, and then she was back like two and a half weeks later. Because she couldn't afford not to be. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't know. I want to say we paid some maternity leave, but it's like, that's hard too. Is that like, if you're not like super fucking rich, like we give two weeks vacation. Um, well, and it's also, it's hard to, because you, when she's gone, you have to find someone else to do it, you know, cause you can't just take right. maternity leave from your job as well. No, so it's like, it's a big, it's a big, you know, it's a big challenge, but I think about that. It's like, Oh, we're not offering healthcare. Um, we're not offering, I mean, you got to give people time off and yet you got to go to work. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know if we're going to solve this today, but I'm glad we've asked the questions. <laughs> um, it's great to meet you. You too. And I congratulate you on your book uh, and on your next book and on whatever mysterious movie stuff might or might not be happening. <laughs> Thank you. All right, folks, there you go. That is Madeline Stevens. Her debut novel is called Devotion. It's out there now from Echo. You can find Madeline online at madeline-stevens.com. That's Stevens with a V. And you can follow her on Twitter at Madeline63. That's at M-A-D-E-L-I-6-3. The novel, once more, is called Devotion. Available from Echo. Go get your copy immediately. Steal it if you have to. But if you don't have to buy it or actually go to the library check it out you don't have to steal it thanks to uh my patreons is that what you call is that what you call somebody who supports you on patreon do you call them a a patreon thank you to my supporters if you want to join them you can do that by going to patreon.com slash other ppl pod you can also rate and review this program at itunes that helps if you would like to write to me, once again, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the other people with Brad Listy app. This show has its own official app. It's free. Everything's free. Go get the, uh, the uh, other people with Brad Listy app at your favorite app store. 
I got a letter from a listener named Paris that I didn't get a chance to read at the top of the show. He was responding to episode 604. He's telling me, I'm going to summarize here. He was saying that Elon Musk's solar tiles were bullshit. And then he also had questions about Trump-Russia and whether or not the focus on Russia was distracting from domestic problems like the you know election security or U.S. foreign policy and you know our imperialistic behavior on that front and you know it goes on I, I yes Russia uh, is primary for me but I also care about the other stuff too I think we can worry about it all we can do this we can do it all but if the country isn't sovereign if the president is owned by a foreign mob state we have a problem. <laughs>